and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester-Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I'm excited to share a conversation with Nate Andorsky. Nate is an entrepreneur who uses behavioral science to build digital strategies and technology for today's most innovative companies and nonprofits. He believes the key to unlocking the potential of technology lies within our understanding of the psychological factors that drive human decision-making. By combining scientific findings with outside-of-the-box thinking, he helps turn human understanding into business advantages. Welcome, Nate. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Yeah, me too. We're going to have fun. So I always like to start by asking people a little bit about um, who they are and how they got here. So uh, how did you get started? Where did, how did you get to where you are? Oh, wow. Uh, long journey. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, so I graduated from George Washington University in 2010, and I sold insurance for a little bit, but I've had an entrepreneurial background since I was very young. I had my first business in, in high school. I sold items for people on eBay and then took a commission to the sale price. So I, I've had entrepreneurial tendencies, I would say, from as, as young as I can remember. And uh, in 2012, I joined the Startup America Partnership Team, which was an organization to help build entrepreneurial communities throughout the U.S. And then in 2013, I got a new job at another organization for a few months, and then I got fired. And that was when I started my current company, Creative Science. And, All right. I'm uh, going to pause you there. Yeah. You have to tell us the story. How did you, what was this job and how did you get fired? Uh, so the job was actually with Startup Weekend, and they ran these. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar yes. with, with them. Yeah, fifty-four uh, hour uh, workshops, basically, of the course of the weekend. Coming with an idea, just launch a company. I was a regional operations manager, um, managing the Northeast, and um, you know, it just it honestly just wasn't a good fit. I think that the people that were there kind of could sense that I wasn't really into the role, and then also mm-hmm. because of that, I just wasn't really doing that great of a job. I, I don't think I was doing a horrible job, but uh, the company was also going through a transition at the time. So I think it just wasn't a right fit for the company uh, or for me. And I still remember it vividly. I was sitting at my um, my kitchen table in this townhouse that I live with four of my friends from college. And the townhouse was like kind of run down. The kitchen table was one that I had grown up on uh, as, as a child. And I, I an invite popped up on my calendar from one of the VPs. And I thought to myself, oh, this is really interesting. I'm either going to be tasked to do something really, really important, this is really, really good news, or it's really, really bad news. And sure enough, I got on the phone call, uh, and they informed me that my my employment with Startup Weekend was terminated effective immediately. And that was sort of mm. the beginning of, of creative science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from, from the ashes, good things come, right? Exactly, exactly. So how did you decide creative science was what you're going to do next? Sure. So we launched creative science in 2013 with two of my, my other former co-workers at another company. And we we wanted to go out on our own. And we launched originally as a web design development agency, just building mobile apps and websites. And uh, about two or three years later, I actually had read a book called Nudge, which is one of the most popular books in related to behavioral economics. And as I was reading through the book, I noticed that a lot of the concepts, at least on a high level, if you build products, you just know, right? Social norm theory, paradox of choice, make things really easy to use, et cetera. But what I noticed was there was a lot more going on underneath the surface in regards to behavioral economics. And I was like, oh, there must be individuals that are really integrating behavioral economics or behavioral science into product design. And the more that I dug, 
the more that I found out, there really wasn't. Um, and this is when the shift began within the company to really refocus the company to use behavioral science and infuse it into product design. Awesome. So you mentioned a couple of things there, like the paradox of choice and, and whatnot. Tell, tell us more about those for, for listeners who are um, newer to the behavioral science aspect. Sure. Uh, yeah. So paradox of choice is a study uh, that was done. And Barry Schwartz actually talks about this in his book, Paradox of Choice. It basically is the concept that, you know, the idea is that as humans, we want, we want choices, right? That's what we think we want. But there was a study that was done. It was a jam study in the food store and they put out 26 different types of jams. And they noticed that when people walked by the conversion, the purchase rate, it was only 6%. Uh, but when they reduced this to actually only six different types of jams, the purchase rate went up to over 30%. Um, and it's basically this, this study that basically talks about this idea is that uh, us as users, as individuals, um, think we want access to a lot of choices. But what actually happens when we're presented with too many choices, too many options, we go into this sort of analysis paralysis and don't make a decision. Uh, this is something that's very prominent in product design, right? Giving users too many options can actually cause them to do nothing. Yeah, absolutely. So have you worked that into your products along the way? And can you can you share with us a time when that was uh, a really impactful thing? Yeah, definitely. So I mean, we, we like to really dig into sort of the behavioral science uh, behind product design. And that where this all comes from is when we talk about building products, one of the things we, we talk about is a lot of organizations and companies will go out and they'll do focus groups and interviews. And What's fascinating about this is it's a really good place to start to ask people what they want. But the reality of it is that 95% of our thoughts, emotions, and learnings happen on a subconscious level. So much of what we tell people as to why we did something is a very small part of the picture. Um, we're not really consciously aware of much of what drives our decision-making. And that's where behavioral science comes in so beautifully. Um, mm -hmm. And an example of this, I actually referenced this in my book. It's not a client of ours, but I think it just kind of outlines how behavioral science can be used in product design. There's a company called Lemonade. They do home and renters insurance. And one of the things they want to do is they want to reduce fraudulent claims. And Dan Ariely, who's one of the well-known behavioral economists, is on their, on their team. And typically, what most people would do with this type of scenarios, I want to reduce fraudulent claims. Well, what I need to do is I need to figure out how to make a really sophisticated claims process to detect fraudulent claims. But what Dan and his team said is, okay, well, let's actually look on what's going on in the behavioral layer. And he said, okay, well, really what the, what the issue here is, it's trust, right? It's a broken system of trust. People are filing fraudulent claims because they're not trustworthy. So the question then becomes not how do you reduce fraudulent claims, but how do you address a broken system of trust? And they've done a number of really interesting things. So the first thing they do is when you sign up for the program, what you do is you select a charity that you want to support. The end of every month, they take in all of their premiums, they take a percentage of profit, and then any excess cash, they'll donate to a charity on your behalf. What this does, though, interestingly enough, is if you file a fraudulent claim, you're no longer just stealing from the insurance company, but you're also indirectly stealing from the charity. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, when you file the claim, they ask you to take a video of yourself filing the claim rather than just submitting it in written form because they know you're less likely to to lie on video than you are through written form. And this is just an example of how you can first and foremost really understand what's driving the behavior before you actually build and design the product itself. Yeah, and I really like that example because something as simple as asking people to take a video of themselves, um, you know, it, it's probably not that complicated to build into the product. 
probably people were thinking about doing, you know, deep machine learning algorithms and things like right. that, that would be even harder. And sometimes there's something simple that right. affects people's behavior. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, what was your journey like in trying to apply, you know, things from Nudge into uh, product design? How did you first uh, sell that as a service? Oh, I love this question. <laughs> so it's been really interesting is that there's a huge gap that exists between the academic side and the applied side. The academic research in regards to what drives human behavior precedes implementation by about 15 years. And there's a number of different reasons that this exists. And it's a really big challenge. And part of the reason is because behavioral nudges are very contextual, right? So what will work or may work in one study doesn't mean it's you can just copy and paste into what you're doing. Um, it really takes a creative individual to understand not only the theory and the research, but be able to take that, think about it abstractly, connect different concepts together, and then integrate it into your product in a way that's effective. Um, but the biggest challenge that I have found with it is twofold. Number one is there's a big translation issue, right? So you're talking to marketing product designers that are looking at the product that typically don't have a background in behavioral science. You've got to be able to talk about it in a very easy to digest way um, and be able to speak about it in a way that they can really understand is a huge challenge. And then number two is in academia, you're typically starting with something you want to test, right? I want to test this paradox of choice. I'm going to come up with a bunch of different studies the applied side is completely backwards, right? You're starting with a problem. I'm seeing user churn. I, I don't have great user retention numbers. And then you've got to back your way into the behavioral science. Um, so those are, those are two of the big challenges that we've seen trying to actually implement behavioral science into product design. Yeah. I, I like that you brought up sort of what's different about, you know, academia, uh, behavioral science versus applied. I think, you know, uh, listeners may know I went to engineering school and the, the big reason why I chose engineering school was because, you know, it was the school of engineering and applied science. And in all of the sales things before you go to the school, they really hammer in like you're going to apply the science to do things in the real world. And I was like, great, that's what I want to do. Um, you know, it turns out that when you're doing that at the type of school I was doing it at, you, you can still you can still find yourself in some heavily theoretical places. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. And there's a lot of conversations going on around this too, is like, you know, we want to be intentional and rigorous with the type of behavioral science that we integrate. But there's also some stuff from academia that like just doesn't make sense to translate over to the applied side. So there's also that mm -hmm. kind of balance, right? Yeah. Because the goals are different, right? In academia, you want to get published for something novel, new. In the applied side, you want to do one of two things, reduce costs or increase revenue, right? Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite things to say is, uh, you know, obviously you and I both have science in the name of our companies, right? So we can, we obviously care about it a lot, believe in it. Um, but I often tell people, you know, the experiments that we're running or the research that we're doing for our business, we're not trying to publish a journal article that will last, you know, stand the test of time. We're just trying to make a good business decision and the bar yeah. is different, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think, totally you know, yeah. So I think I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, have you faced skepticism with, you know, knowing about these differences? Have you faced people who were like, well, how does that matter here? Shouldn't we just follow this design pattern that so-and-so company does? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. Or We often get um, 
you know, from potential clients, can you show me a specific case study that you've done that is exactly like the challenge that I have, right? And the, the fact of the matter is, is that every challenge is different. And I always like to say that our interventions are human specific, not industry specific, because of the core about how we make decisions. So there's, there's that challenge. And that's just, I think, a bias that everybody has is like, I want certainty that you can solve my problem. And if you solved it before, then I know that you can solve it again. Um, so that's definitely a, a challenge that we've seen from, from that side. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, but you've gotten, how have you gotten past that challenge? One of the things that we do is, I mean, we always start with what their goals are right? Let's, let's start there because that's your North Star. At the end of the day, you don't, I don't say you don't care. Um, you, you care about your goals. You don't really care about how we get there, right? And then what we start to do is we start to educate the client in regards to what behavioral science is, how it's different than sort of just normal UX design, how it fits together with UX design, and then start to show them the theories that we're using to uh, dissect what's driving behavior and then show them the theories that we're using to help offset those behaviors. That's when they begin to understand and really see how what we're doing is actually different. Mm-hmm. That's great. Who are some of the other people you've come across as you've been working on, you know, the, the application of behavioral science in product design? So product design specifically is a little bit few and far between. Um, Dan Ariely is probably the most well-known individual in this space. Um, BJ Fogg does a lot of work here too. Dan has slabbed down at Duke the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Uh, Rory Sutherland, he's hilarious and he's brilliant. Uh, he's great. He's with Ogilvy. And uh, he's more on kind of the marketing side and the product design side. But those are some of the names that are, are more prominent in this space. Mm-hmm. And uh, what are some of the key lessons you've learned from some of the others in this space that, that you think are worth sharing? So first and foremost is um, I think there's a temptation to replicate solutions, right? So let's say you have a, a fitness app, right? And you're trying to get people to work out more. Well, let's just gamify it, right? There's this gamification thing that worked on this other app. Like, why don't we just copy and paste that? You've got to really understand first and foremost, what is the behavior that you're trying to, to drive, not the solution you're trying to implement. And then you want to start there and then work your way from there to then come up with a solution. Um, that's one of, the, one of the things that I've, I've seen the most. So when you go uh, back to some of the things you said earlier, I believe you said something about um, social norm. Was that right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell us more about that one. Yeah, so social norm theory basically talked about this idea that we, we tend to follow the crowd, right? So we have a tendency, whether we realize it or not, the idea of like keeping up with the Joneses is very popular to, to follow what other people are doing. And this actually reminds me of a, another chapter in my book where there was an individual, he had started a company and what they were doing was it was an ed tech company. So basically the concept was it was a software that employers could provide through their employees to help them learn new skills. So they would go on the app, they would do like a 10 minute lesson, learn a new skill. And then the goal was for them to actually put that into practice. They could take a video or like an image of themselves doing this thing. And a lot of individuals were consuming the content, but no one was actually implementing the skills. And they, they were trying to figure out how to get people to actually take action. And they tried all of these different types of things. One thing they tried was giving people badges and rewards. One thing they tried was actually giving people gift cards and nothing was really working. The gift cards actually backfired because they triggered something called mental accounting, where people were equating the time they were putting in to what they were being compensated. Eventually, they landed on this one model where 
when you joined the program, they would split you up into a cohort of about 50 people. And without fail, every time they did this, there was always like two or three people who were off to a really fast start. And they would send a simple message around and say, you know, congrats, Jane and Jim. You guys are doing great. You've already completed two lessons to put them in action. This created the highest uptick in user engagement out of anything they tried. And the reason is, is because what they had done is they've changed the social norm around what you should be doing in the app, not by telling people what they should do, not by forcing them, but by simply showing other people in the cohort what others were doing. And that caused this uptick in user engagement. Yeah, that's a really strong story. I'm also curious, do you have any stories of a time when you worked with a client or used a product and you just thought, oh my goodness, these people got behavioral science completely wrong. They don't understand at all what humans are going to do with this. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a simple example or a specific example because, um, you know, some of the work that we do is, is, is uh, confidential, but I think w- one of the biggest mistakes I often see is gamification, right? You're trying to get somebody to do something. Let's just gamify it. And there's a lot of research in regards to intrinsic and extrinsic motivators and how gamified models work. Um, And what's interesting about that is implementing a gamified model in the wrong context can actually completely backfire in regards to what you're doing. And again, it kind of goes back to my point is don't just slap solutions on things. You've really got to understand first and foremost, like what you're trying to get people to do and the behavioral science behind it. So you don't run into that, that instance. Yeah. So I'm sure, I'm sure we've got listeners who've either been in the room or been themselves the ones saying, why don't we gamify it? How do you know if it's the wrong situation for that? That's a great question. So um, when we talk about motivation, there are two types of motivations, right? There are intrinsic motivations and there are extrinsic motivations. Extrinsic motivations are things that uh, you're motivated to do because you're given some external reward, right? You're given a pay raise, you're given a bonus, you're giving a badge. Intrinsic motivation is something that you're just already motivated to do to begin with. You get self-fulfillment out of it. You get mastery. Dan Ping talks a lot about this. Um, there's a lot that goes into when you use a gamified model, but one of the key concepts here is if, if an action is supposed to be intrinsically motivated, offering an external reward to do that action can actually have a crowding out effect, right? So wanting to learn a new skill, if I'm intrinsically motivated to want to learn that new skill, giving me a reward to do that can actually decrease the likelihood that I, I will perform that skill. Um, extrinsic motivators typically work really well. Um, and this is a blanket statement, so it's not true across the board. But when something is not intrinsically motivated and it's relatively easy to do. So, for example, change a light bulb, right? But replace refrigerator, not very easy to do. I don't think you'd want to provide a reward for 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 that. Yeah, makes sense. What are some other behavioral science principles that you found really useful in the product design world? Yeah, in the product design world... Um, one of the things we found really useful, and it kind of goes back to gamification, in, in game design, there's something called, have you ever played Mario Kart by chance? Of course. Okay. <laughs> you ever notice in Mario Kart, when you're in the game and you get far behind, all of a sudden you start getting those power-ups? Like oh, mushrooms. yeah. Like you get the bullet. Uh, only yes. if you're in the end, if you're, if you're way behind, you might get the bullet. Otherwise, you'll never get it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's actually built into the game. It's something called dynamic game balancing. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's also referred to often as rubber banding. The basic concept is, and a lot of games use this, 
when you're competing against other players, if you're too far ahead or too far behind, you become disengaged. So mm-hmm. they'll rebalance the game so you catch up to the group. Mm-hmm. So when you look at if you have a product design, let's say there's some sort of leaderboard, for example, or some sort of competition amongst other players, this is a really key concept to keep in mind because this is one of the ways that leaderboards can backfire is if you get somebody that's too far ahead of the pact, what happens is everybody else rationalizes, well, there's no point even trying. I can't catch up. Let's mm-hmm. just go ahead and let them run to rebalance the game. Um, that's a really interesting concept uh, that, that we have seen in product design. Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me a lot in the early days of um, mobile and gamification for health. Uh, I was working in a, in a mobile health company for a little while, and uh, I remember the, the founders were like, let's gamify everything. Let's make leaderboards. Let's make it all social. Let's do this. Let's do that. And I just remember being like, I know there's a cohort for which that works, but there's also a cohort for which that just shuts you down. Like, you know, and yeah. uh, um, it's always been fascinating to me to see how, how people think about that, particularly the, those making the product design decisions. Uh, have you done any work where you're sort of applying this in the health space? We've, we've done a little bit of work in the health space. Um, you know, there's actually a lot of interest from insurance companies around this, but also specifically about just behavior change in general. So one of the big questions is, you know, how do I get more of my my customers to use virtual health? And this was pre-COVID uh, than in-person health. So just changing and shifting those behaviors too. Typically, we see a lot of this resonate in any type of product design where you're asking users to take an action today that has a long-term potential payout, right? So you're looking at health decisions, uh, decisions around your, your, your finances, decisions around um, an online education platform where you're learning a new skill, right? Because it's interesting, we actually have a really hard time, contrary to what we think, is really understanding the impact of the decisions that we make today, how those are going to impact our future self. So that's a lot where this behavioral science comes in is kind of how do you close that gap? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I know some of those types of companies are the kinds of places that were the first to get, you know, chief behavioral officer yeah. uh, and things like that. We've interviewed uh, Matt Wallard uh, oh, yeah. on this podcast uh, in the past. And I know that's, that's great. His, yeah, that's his title, uh, chief mm-hmm. behavioral officer. For a while, when I first uh, met him, it, his, uh, his Twitter bio said, you know, on a mission to become the first chief behavioral right. officer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Made it happen. Right. Um, but uh, switching gears a little bit, have you found yourself thinking about behavior science as you, as you navigate COVID, the COVID world and what's going on around you? In, in just my everyday life, like outside of product design? Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely have. I think it's, it's really fascinating. Um, you know, one of the things that behavioral science talks about is this idea of scope and sensitivity, right? Mm-hmm. And it goes back to the identifiable victim effect where, you know, we have a tendency to offer greater aid when a specific person is observed under hardship versus a group of people. And it's just interesting because as you've seen COVID get larger and larger and larger, the responses have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller, right? So there's a lot of like the behavioral science behind that and what's going on with sort of scope and sensitivity. Um, there's also a lot of research in behavioral science that we just, we don't like uncertainty. As soon as you introduce some type of uncertainty into any type of decision, it completely flips on its head how you make decisions. And there's a big component of that um, with COVID. So there, there's a lot going on that I, I kind of think about day in and day out in regards to the current climate. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious because um, one of the things, there's a couple of things in my mind with that, but one of the, one of the most interesting talks I have 
watched online in the past several months was actually Dan Ariely talking about what might happen as COVID progresses, like what, you know, what does the future look like post COVID? Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember, um, you know, he talked about sort of how people adjust to what's going on around them and um, sort of these different phases of life after COVID that we might see and, and how he's seeing those based on, you know, people's comfort with what's going on and their likelihood to take certain behaviors. And I think of all of the sort of, I guess, predictions about what life is going to look like. Um, his was one of the ones that like rung the most true to me where I was like, yes, that seems right. And there were a lot of times in the early days of, of COVID, you know, early days of quarantining in the U.S. where um, people around me were getting all of their news and predictions from like TV news. And I was getting mine from our world and data and various like scientific places. And I, I sometimes would have a conversation and I was just like, Wow, we have totally different pictures of what's going on in the world yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. What, what were some of the things that Dan noted? Um, I mean, I'm I'm hesitant to because uh, I I watched it, you know, maybe one and a half times. So, um, but what I remember was there being sort of a phase of like, you know, people who are more risk tolerant beginning to do things again, which I think we're in now. But some things taking a very long time to come back to normal. One of the things that I remember standing out a lot was he was working with the Israeli government on um, how to help keep the economy moving in these times. And he did some studies on or he not maybe not studies. He did some application of the science around um, restaurants and coffee shops and finding that if they set up their restaurant or coffee shop outside during COVID times in a way that you know, people are still able to sort of meet and congregate that that would help them continue to do it versus if they just like can't do it for a long time and then they have to start, it'll seem really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think resonates well with like what we're doing here in New York city where I am that um, you know, everything is outdoor dining only. And so people are getting comfortable being around other people outside, but not Mm -hmm. so comfortable being around other people inside. Um, I think it was a really big awareness of just, Norms are changing, and even when it's safe again, people will feel weird. <laughs> yeah, you know it's really interesting. And like with what Dan said is, and it goes back to the actual example about the cohort model and social norms is like, you know, one of the biggest ways to get people to change their behaviors, you change their environment, you change the rules of the game, the norms, right? So one of the things that I imagine that Dan was talking about is if you change the norm where you don't dine and then you try to dine, it's weird, right? But if you always kind of keep this dining going, the norm never really changed drastically, right? Mm-hmm. I think one of the big questions is though, like how long does a new norm, right? Working from home, whatever it may be, need to change for that to actually become the norm moving forward versus reverting back to whatever the old norm was. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do remember um, he drew this sort of graph of, I don't think he necessarily put, he certainly didn't put exact timelines on it. He might've put, you know, a general idea, but I remember coming away with the idea that, you know, the expansion of activities, there'd be this contraction of activities that people think are okay to do. And then there'd be this period where it's at the minimum amount of okay, acceptable activities. And then there'd be like a couple phases of expansion and that, um, that each of those would basically all take a long time. Like that we were going to be in this contracted phase for long enough that, those contracted norms would become the norms. And in many ways we would be starting anew with what's okay uh, to, to practice in society. It's, it's also fascin- fascinating. There's a lot of like attribution errors that people make. And I do too, right. With sort of like 
how you navigate COVID, right? The own, your own rules that you've set for yourself where it's, I'm going to socially distance. I will only see this person, this person, this person, but not this person. But the reason I'll see this person is because they're my friend. So for whatever reason, because they're my friend, I've made this correlation that they're less likely to contract COVID. Like, so there's, there's a lot of this mm-hmm. sort of, you create your own environment, your own rule book, you'll bend certain rules, but not bend other rules. But if somebody else bends the same rule, you, you look at that as them breaking the rules, but you can justify it to yourself. And then you'll also make justifications for things that really rationally may not make a lot of sense. But I think part of it is trying to create some certainty around the environment and some rule book to play within. So I think that's really interesting too. Yeah. And I think you're totally right. I think a lot of the behaviors we've seen have had to do with that creating just people trying to create some certainty and trying to create some sense of control because they're so uncomfortable with the uncertainty. And that Mm -hmm. also brings me to the, you know, I guess one of the other big reasons why I brought up COVID in this conversation is that when this first happened, I felt that being a person who spends so much time, you know, conceptually thinking about and living with uncertainty, you know, in the product world has affected the way I deal with the whole thing, that I'm less stressed out than a lot of my um, friends who don't work in industries where everything is changing so fast and it's so uncertain all the time Uh, because I'm just more used to it. I'm more used to the uncertainty and to embracing it and saying, you know, how can we work with it rather than pretend it doesn't exist? Sure. And I think, uh, yeah, one of the other things I've seen a lot of is sort of, you know, I guess the attribution errors, like people are, um, there are certain behaviors that are normal and not normal, but they don't always really well correlate to what's risky and not risky. Sometimes yeah. they're kind of like, what's easier to control than others, right. <laughs> you know, right. and that ends up being the thing. And it's sort of fascinating to watch. Like, um, you know, I, uh, in the beginning of COVID um, here in New York, I, I had been a person who regularly was ordering groceries by delivery via like, um, you know, via apps before COVID started, but when COVID started, all of a sudden I couldn't get time slots anymore because everybody was doing it. So mm-hmm. I had to go to the grocery store regularly. And so I had this sort of weird, this weird sensation of like, there's all these things we're not doing. And yet I'm going to the grocery store at least once a week with my children because I didn't right. have another choice. And so it'd be like, well, all the things I'm not doing. And yet here I am, bunch of strangers in a store where we touch things, you right. know. <laughs> it's interesting. Like, and it's it's also interesting. It kind of ties back to your, your comment about what, makes sense in academia and not in the applied side. There was a podcast I was listening to by Nick Hobson. They were talking about, and this was a couple months ago, but using face mask coverings. And I, I mean, there's studies that have come out since showing their effectiveness, but this was a time when like, we weren't really sure, right? In, in academia, it's like, is it statistically significant, right? In the applied side, in this instance, it's like, does it do any harm? No. So what harm, even, even if it's only a little bit effective, right? even if it's not statistically significant, whatever it is, does it, does it make sense not to wear a mask, right? And that, that's some of the balance that we often see from the applied side versus the academic side is that it, it's very contextual, right? It, it matters what, what the, the payoff is, but it also matters what the risks are um, yeah. in each situation. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, um, I guess one of the other places where I see this, I'm a parent, I have two kids, and they're both, uh, at this point, they're both school-aged, which is bizarre for me to say my son is going into pre-k so just just hitting that point 
uh, my younger one. Um, but, uh, you know, so we're spending a lot of conversations amongst parents about, well, what are you going to do when school starts? Are you sending your kids? Are you not sending your kids? Are you comfortable with this? What are you comfortable with? What are you changing? You know, et cetera. And uh, it's fascinating to me, you know, what things people will and won't live with. And some of it has to do with this sort of, you know, awareness and that sense of, you know, what is what is a scary short-term outcome, like a scary short-term negative outcome versus right. a scary sh- longer-term negative outcome. You know, people are always optimizing for the short-term one, right? Like they're always scared of that short-term thing and not as worried about the long-term thing. Meanwhile, I am going to be really uh, fascinated, if not disheartened by, um, you know, the social and non-tablet-based skills that the little kids today will yeah. have, you know, yeah. because they're so isolated. There's this like, like life for kids was already changing before COVID. Yeah. And now all of a sudden we're like, stay home, stare at a screen. You're supposed right. to do it. You right. know, it's yeah. like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. So are there any other sort of key key principles or um, thoughts that you want to share with our listeners about, uh, about, you know, decoding the why? Yeah. Um, I mean, so there, the, there's two other key takeaways. One is really fascinating that I love to talk about because you just brought it up about present bias where we heavily overweight our present situation versus our future, which situation and that the way that we view time is, is really interesting. And there's research that talks about your current self versus your future self, right? So when you think about your future self in the future, you're trying to do something to better your future self, whether it's save more money, eat better, work out more. The way that we view our self today is in first person. The way that we view our future self is actually in third person, right? And what this does is there's research that suggests that the way that we view our quote unquote future self is a stranger, right? So even though we say we care for that future self, what happens to him or her is as inconsequential as it happening to some random person that walks by on the street, right? So that's one of the reasons that you see this dynamic where it's really hard to save money for retirement, for example, because even though we say we care about myself in 60, 65 years, the reality of it is, is it's not very salient. We, we don't really connect with that future self. So that that's one really interesting concept that I, I really dig into in the book, talking about this this paradox and then also how do you close that gap and then the last part and i close the book out with this it's called driven by emotion and it talks about how poor we are understanding and getting us to move action when we're throwing numbers and stats and how we connect and relate to stories and how we think about the world in stories and how you can create a product experience and talk about the work that you're doing in stories that will create a much more compelling narrative um, than, than throwing numbers and stats at, at individuals. Yeah. Uh, and why is that? Why does that work so much better? It taps into our, our emotional side, um, which that's really what drives us to take action. Um, it also goes back to this uh, concept of the hero's journey, right? So um, this is used in storytelling and in, in movies, but it enables us to really put ourselves in the place of a person and experience what they're experiencing. Um, and, and that is one of the big pulls why this, this type of approach works really well. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I found as well. Definitely in my product management career helped a lot. Once I started really honing my craft at telling stories as a way of getting, you know, moving forward a business idea. Yeah, it's completely true. You know, 
we, we like to think about things from like a beginning, middle and end. Right. Yeah. And you'll notice, and I always talk about this too, is like, you know, Nike sells shoes, but all of their marketing is around storytelling, right. Of athletes. Right. And like, mm-hmm. that's what gets us, gets us hooked. Yeah, exactly. And I was just thinking that too, with regards to even B2B businesses, the sales process and the pitch deck and things like that, yeah. you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff out there that says that the best ones are the ones that put the, put the buyer in the hero's shoes and right. you know, take them through the journey. Here's why you are going to be amazing at work when you buy this product, or right. you buy this service, you know, rather exactly. than, here's all the amazing things about us. It's so much more effective and it, it makes people more motivated to take action. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So would you have any, um, any advice for a budding behavioral science influenced uh, product designer or a product manager? Yes. Well, first one is read, read my book. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it does a, a really great job of taking very complex theories and making them accessible and giving you really actionable insights you can start to use right away. Uh, it's not the holy grail. It just scratches the surface. But the biggest thing that I've learned is you, and, and people who build products just kind of already know this, but you just need to get your hands dirty. Uh, sitting around and reading about the academic literature is great. But at the end of the day, you, you're not going to really learn this stuff until you just try to start integrating it, seeing what works and what doesn't work. And when something does or doesn't work, trying to tie it back to the behavioral science and say, oh, this is why it works. This is why it doesn't work. But the dirtier you can get your hands and the more you can really start to work with yourself with this type of uh, methodology, that's how you're going to really be able to really grasp it rather than just have a surface level understanding of it. Mm-hmm. So you got you to gotta give it a try. You got to maybe fail a little bit along the way and then, uh, then you'll figure it out even more deeply. Exactly. And it's, it, it makes, I think, your job too a little bit easier because when you're making product recommendations rather than just telling a client or if you're on a product team internally, hey, this is what I think we should do. Um, you can say, well, this is what the behavioral science says as to why we're making this recommendation. And it just gives you another leg to stand on. Mm-hmm. Because awesome. we often, we're not often, sometimes we see that, you know, really well-designed products have behavioral science infused all through them. The product designers didn't know they were using behavioral science. They've just, they've become so good at building products that they figured out what works and what doesn't work. So just tying that back into the behavioral science piece. Absolutely. All right. And where can people find your book and where can they find you? So Amazon, just search Decoding the Why. It'll come up. It's available in Kindle and paperback. And then myself, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So Nate Andorsky, just search for me and connect. And then the website for my company is www.creativescience.co.com.co. And you can sign up for my newsletter on there too. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, Nate. It has too. Thank you so much for having me. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.